Hi there. Thanks for coming. Welcome to Dharma Punks New York. I'm Josh. And uh, if you'd like to support my work, of course, as a pastor, uh, the Venmo is Dharma Punks with an XNYC. So thank you for that. Tonight, I'm going to be talking about secrets. It's sometimes a topic that comes up in the counseling work I do. And also, it's um, a topic that's always relevant in the journey of healing, recovery. It's an important consideration, understanding the toll they take on our well-being, reminding us that we are, as a species, pack animals, find safety in numbers, and we thrived due to our ability to cement robust affiliations that would help us not only secure protection from predators, but also developed through social organizations ways to survive inclement environments and so forth. So as pack animals, we have our brain is a social organ. What it does is it rewards us for positive connections with others that build up trust and affiliation. And because of these, this wiring, anterior cingulate cortex, both right and left hemispheres, uh, we experience pride and joy when we feel well bonded with others. And on the other hand, we experience negative affects like shame and guilt when we in some way act from antisocial motives or we expect some form of social exclusion or rejection to happen. Our nervous systems, in other words, are not self-contained. Our emotions are regulated in connection with others. And there's various terms that clinicians use like neuroception and limbic resonance. And what they mean is that the bulk of our emotion regulation and the way that we feel safer in the world and we feel relaxed occurs in the nonverbal signaling back and forth of our internal experience through our tone of voice, our facial expression, whether we make eye contact, our body language, and we're rarely in control of these rarely, if ever, in control of these signals that we send to others. And others receive these nonverbal signals, and they unconsciously read them, interpret them, and through that, we bond together. We like to think that bonding, when we meet a friend or uh, we go out on a date, uh, is something that happens because we share similar ideas, views, beliefs, uh, and those do play a role, but the bulk of the connection or what really does the work of bonding human beings together is right brain to right brain, as it said, where our body language, tone of voice, the way we look at others uh, transmits a sense of welcome, a sense of, or transmits an authentic disclosure of our internal experience. And another person hears that and they uh, disclose through their affects, through their 
facial expressions, their tone of voice, what's going on in turn inside of them. And together we attune, we develop a sense of trust. Um, so given that regulation and safety and bonding depends on this disclosure of what's going on within us and this uh, divulging of our internal states, which is done both consciously and unconsciously. It's interesting that as a species, we also develop the ability to withhold secrets from each other. Why is that? Given how important being truly seen for our authentic internal experience is. Well, in the influential years of childhood, when all the synaptic connections are being uh, pruned away and resulting in uh, vast overdetermined networks that create our beliefs and our behaviors, during countless tens of thousands of interactions with caregivers and peers and siblings or, or, and family members, we learn which emotions and behaviors are socially well accepted and rewarded and which behaviors and emotions are rebuked, punished, or shamed. And so from a very early age, and studies I read as early as four and a half to five years of age, children learn to um, keep secrets why? Well, out of fear of being punished uh, or shamed uh, when we reveal something that we've done that we feel guilty over. And also we keep secrets as a way to see if peers are trustworthy. So we share something with them that we don't want them to pass on. And then we see if they can keep our secrets safe. And then from that, we develop trust. And another reason is that we want to obtain desired objects without being told off. So the child learns very quickly that if the parent is going to say no, when it wants to uh, eat sugar, it might wait until the parent isn't looking and then grab a cookie. Um, in my case, it was there was these things called yodels, which I used to crave as a five-year-old. And then when people would ask me, where are the yodels we bought? I would lie and deny and act surprised. So I'd keep it a secret, the fact that I consumed it. Um, so there's obviously developmental milestones that uh, we all reach. And there's nothing wrong with the fact that at the that as children, we learn to keep secrets. Uh, it's actually considered to be a sign that we've developed what's called mentalization and theory of mind, where we can interpret the fact that other people might not be happy <laughs> with what we've done. Um, Robin Dunbar, famous evolutionary psychologist who I'm a big fan of, notes that gossip and secrets were a vital resource for building in some ways um, clans because we needed to be able at times to talk about which tribal members were freeloaders, not pulling their weight. 
or we're in some way uh, acting selfishly. And we wouldn't want this information to be known uh, by the freeloader. So we would keep it a secret that we were talking about them. But Gilchrist, the great theorist, uh, neuropsychologist, notes that we have massive frontal cortexes which allowed for the inhibition of the impulse to disclose and talk about anything that was on our mind at times which allows us to keep secrets and lies and he believes it was uh, for the somewhat machiavellian goal of gaining tribal advantages so where while there are enormous benefits for um, disclosing, uh, and while it's a very important, and we'll, as we'll talk about, there's also clear reasons why people don't always disclose. They want to build trust. They want to get advantages over others. They want to um, obtain objects through illicit means. And most importantly, in adult life, we, we keep secrets because we are ashamed of some experience. Uh, uh, and so we uh, keep it to ourselves because we're uh, upset or, or we're, we anticipate people being upset or disappointed with us. Now, given even though there are some understandable reasons why we do keep secrets, they take a terrible, terrible toll on our psychological and physical well being. Um, over time, uh, first and foremost, and there's so many reasons why it comes at a great cost, uh, over time, the lack of correspondence between what we say, when we say everything's fine, but everything's not fine, creates a discrepancy between our words and the nonverbal cues that we're, saying, we're expressing. I'm sure we've all had it where somebody has been angry but as when we ask how how are you doing and they say fine it creates this discrepancy we can see from their tone of voice their facial expression uh that they're distracted that they're upset that they're angry with someone yet their voice says everything's fine and we begin to unconsciously detect that there's a disconnection there between what people are saying and what they're emoting. And that creates an uncomfortable feeling in the person who's with us, or if we're the person who's with the person who's not disclosing. If somebody is withholding something that's important, we ask them how they're doing and they say, it's fine or whatever, it creates a sense of unease because we can tell that what they're experiencing and what they're reporting doesn't add up and over time that discrepancy can make us wary and feel uncomfortable and even want to avoid connecting with that individual so immediately the secrets start to take a toll on our social relationships um but there are many other reasons. Uh, keeping secrets uh, creates what's called cognitive overload. If I have a secret and I'm talking to you, I have to pretend like everything's okay or normal uh, 
I have to monitor myself to make sure I, I'm not revealing that. But then I also am aware internally of what I'm not disclosing. So that uses up all of our cognitive resources. And Anita Kelly at Notre Dame notes that concealing um, directly uh, takes uh, stimulates anxiety and, or depression. James Pennebaker, who we'll talk about at the University of uh, University of Texas, <clears throat> I think that's where he was, noted that it causes hypertension and reduced immune system functioning. Dan Wegner at Harvard, the famous uh, uh, author of the rebound effect, that's so important in. Um, clinical psychology noted that the more we try not to think about secrets, the more they become intrusive and have a rebound effect that eventually leads to rumination and extreme preoccupation. At the University of, I think, Columbia, yeah, I'm pretty sure it was Columbia, uh, Michael Slepian um, and Galinsky, who's also there, I forget the name of the other psychologists, but they did seven or eight studies of some 13,000 people. And they found that the more people reported keeping important or not disclosing important events or experiences or desires, um, they experienced decreased feelings of authenticity, a reduced sense of well-being and satisfaction with one's life, greater fatigue. And most importantly, in virtually all of the seven studies, they found that even when people are holding or keeping secrets for what they believe are good reasons, beneficial reasons, um, they in all the studies showed that keeping secrets comes at the cost of ex, um, worsening a sense of social isolation. This is because when we disclose secrets, um, it lessens the feeling that there's something unique, different, or uh, broken about us. It's only through disclosure that we find out that all of our experiences are not abnormal, but are in some way uh, quite normal. Um, Maybe I'll tell a famous story about that in a moment, if I can remember. Um, Evan Ember Black, a, a developmental psychologist, said that children in abusive family systems who are asked to keep secrets stop reaching emotional milestones. In other words, they stop developing socially, especially once they're shamed by parents not to talk about the violence or the drug use or the alcoholism at home. So the moment you require a child to keep secrets is the moment that child stops to reach very, very vital social milestones of connecting and so forth. Um, individuals are usually capable of keeping secrets but the more they keep them, the more ashamed, isolated, and inauthentic they feel, in other words. And <clears throat> uh, again, it's, uh, it takes also a physiological toll on our immune systems. Now, as harmful as secrets are, on the other hand, 
disclosure is as a corollary just as um just as uh helpful so um for example uh starting in the 1980s uh james pennebaker uh, did these experiments where he asked people to come into his lab for three consecutive days and for 15 minutes uh, write about traumatic experiences and then they would tear up the paper and throw it away uh, by the end of the three days participants felt intense experiences of release those who revealed a secret uh, along with the feelings about that secret, especially if they were traumatic events, had in the following six months far less visits to uh, health centers, um, also reported feeling far healthier than they did previously. Um, Slepi and Halevi and Galinsky, as I recall, showed that disclosure significantly reduces rumination and worry it, um, and allows us to build better relationships. People become better listeners, they sleep better, and, their, and blood tests uh, reveal that they have enhanced immune systems simply by disclosing the great psychologist Donald Winnicott, another hero of mine, um, noted that in therapy, patients arrive or clients arrive, hoping that the therapist will speak aloud for them their secrets, which will somehow, this is the unconscious hope that the therapist will know our secrets, will speak them aloud for us, and thus relieve our sense of guilt, shame, or uniqueness. But instead, Winnicott noted that the key in therapy was that the therapist makes the space or the environment so safe, so like a, what he called a holding space, that the client themselves would be confident and felt safe enough to disclose or divulge what they had been keeping private. And there, therein lied the healing of therapy. In the 12 steps of recovery programs, the most challenging and vital step is probably the fifth step when somebody in a recovery program uh, finally discloses to a sponsor the events that happened generally during their using during for which they feel ashamed or embarrassed and it's not it's up until this disclosure happens, the addict believes that they are unlovable, broken, and most of all, very unique and different from everybody else. And it's only in that powerful moment when the addict discloses the secret that the um, sponsor says, oh yeah, I did that too, or says, oh yeah, I." I know many people who've had the same experiences, that there's this huge unburdening 
this huge relief and this sense of uh, the addict who believed that they were totally unlovable and unique and therefore had to solve all their problems, not by connecting with others, but by drinking or using, now realizes they're in a safe world where they can disclose uh, their experiences without shame or rejection. And that's how recovery works. A significant problem in Western Buddhism is the is this emphasis upon the idea that Buddhism and spiritual practice rests on uh, the isolated contemplation. Uh, it doesn't. Uh, the Buddha said that the entirety of the spiritual path was connecting with what he called Kalyanamita, which uh, is wise spiritual friends. Buddhist practice, spiritual practice does not rest or is not centered upon the individual going off alone and meditating. The real spiritual event happens when we find others that we can uh, uh, unlock what we've kept hidden and uh, reveal it in some way. In the Mita Sutta, when the Buddha talks about how important friendship is, what does he say? A real friend shares their secrets and listens to yours in confidence. They don't abandon you because of your secrets. So he puts at the epicenter of friendship, which is very much the epicenter of the spiritual path, he says the real central event of friendship is the disclosure of secrets. To his son Rahula, he says that the only person who cannot be healed or uh, be rewarded by the spiritual endeavor is someone who doesn't disclose their secrets. <clears throat> and he says to Rahula, any secret thought or inclination that causes suffering should be revealed to a teacher or a wise spiritual friend. And in it, he there's no place for being shamed or rebuked. It's simply in the disclosure. And of course, Buddhism is not alone in this. In so many other spiritual faiths, of course, Catholicism, there's uh, there's disclosure that is emphasized as well. Um, the Padimokkha in Buddhism talks about that the rules, in the rules that govern monks and nuns, requires that they acknowledge secrets to each other, especially when there's any degree of conflict in the Sangha. So I think I've hopefully made a good case for why disclosing secrets is so important. Um, I should note that there are unskillful and skillful ways to disclose. Um, <clears throat> what are the unskillful ways to disclose secrets? One, uh, as is emphasized in recovery circles, but should be emphasized everywhere, we should never disclose a secret to someone who will be emotionally wounded by that. We should wait until a time, unless it's absolutely vitally necessary. In other words, uh, 
if somebody was in a relationship with A was in a relationship with B, they've broken up. A feels guilty about the fact that they cheated throughout the relationship and then goes back and tells B that throughout the relationship, they were secretly cheating with other people. That is not in any shape or form a skillful disclosure and should never be done because it's done completely callously without any regard as to how the information will affect B. <clears throat> we should never disclose things that we've done to harm someone unless we're absolutely sure absolutely sure that B or the person involved is ready and capable of hearing it without it in any way harming them. Two, we should also be aware that sometimes people are going through periods of their life where they already have a lot to process. And so if we are uh, demanding attention or trying to disclose secrets with someone who already is going, has, you know, has no emotional bandwidth left, that's likely to lead to unrewarding results. It's also uh, extremely unbeneficial, nor is it skillful, to disclose a secret to somebody that we're in a power dynamic with. In other words, if we're a boss, we don't disclose our personal secrets to employees. If we're a patron, we don't disclose our personal secrets to a hairstylist or a bartender, even though it seems that those are people that, you know, one bears one, the pains of one's relationships and all that. It's actually abusing a, a client relationship and shouldn't be done. Third-party reveals are also um, unskillful. That's when we tell someone uh, a secret who will likely pass it on to a person who's affected by it. So we have to keep in mind who we're disclosing the secret to, whether they might, whether that secret we're disclosing if it involves somebody else, if they might go and report it to the person who might be adversely affected. And also finally, indirect reveals where it's not person to person, where we try to do the work of disclosing something we feel guilty or ashamed about. We don't do it by email, text, message, or so forth, because it doesn't um, honor the other person's right to hear it in person. And also it, in, it completely deprives us of any benefit from revealing something that we've withheld from others. What are skillful ways to disclose? So we consider the effect on the other person, uh, and one, you know, if the other person is a friend, someone who's emotionally compassionate and we're sure has the bandwidth and the capacity to be, to take it on, a therapist or a spiritual guide. I mean, I'm both. So <laughs> I hear a lot of secrets and that's my job. So uh, 
that's okay always. Um, uh, it's also important when we disclose to state what our needs are. Uh, when someone is listening to a secret, we might not necessarily want them to immediately assure, reassure us that it's not so bad. That might feel inauthentic. It might not really be what we really want. We might just want someone to listen who's available, but not rush to the sense that they have to manage our affect. So it's important to make clear if we don't want to be told it's okay or not to worry. We might simply state that we want simply someone to listen and bear witness, but not, um, but not in any way feel they have to make us feel better. It is worthwhile to practice incremental disclosure, um, observing others' reactions as we disclose to make sure that they have the capacity. And if, if uh, it turns out we're overwhelming them, then to stop. Certainly, I've heard uh, people disclose extremely painful, uh, extremely painful traumatic events. And while it's okay with me because of my work as a Buddhist pastor and therapist, but with other people, if we disclose extreme traumas, it might be triggering for them. So we want to do it slowly and see if they're capable of holding uh, that which we're revealing. Again, Penna Baker's strategy of writing out secrets can help us in the interim uh, release some of the burden of shame or guilt. So I think that's pretty much all I'm going to, I had more, more notes, I remember, but I don't think it's, uh, I think that's a good place to stop and for us to practice. And in our practice, we're going to also see if we can develop the uh, feelings of uh, confidence so that if we do have anything that we haven't disclosed that uh, we've been harboring uh, and in some way uh, keeps on returning in an intrusive way, we can develop the capacity to disclose it. So thank you for listening. And now find a very comfortable position. You can lie down. You can sit in a comfortable chair. You can lie on the ground. You can sit on a cushion. Don't feel in any way expected to cop a rigid meditative posture. I just want you to be comfortable, but hopefully we'll put enough, just enough effort into our practice that we can balance ease with being still awake. So bringing the attention, reeling the attention back in 
from the world around you, letting the world around you become a blur. You can still, with your eyes closed, have sounds present, but see if you can bring the focus of your attention to bear on the internal sensations, feelings that are occurring somatically. So for example, um, you might want to just note if there's anything uncomfortable in your body that you can address at this point. For example, maybe the shoulders still feel a little bit tight. You might want to rotate them and relax them. If your clothing feels too tight, just address that. If your jaw feels clenched, release it. If you can find a more comfortable way to uh, rest, uh, relax, that's welcome. And then see if you can find an easy way to breathe that feels restorative. And generally that means paying attention to the exhalations. It's a given that most people will breathe in as much as they need oxygen, but we cut off habitually the exhalation. And the exhalation is what restores the parasympathetic nervous system. When we breathe in, we're actually stimulating the sympathetic. Exhalations switch us to parasympathetic, which is ease. So if we are always breathing in heavily, but not having long, complete exhalations, we're keeping our nervous system in the sympathetic, vigilant, mobilized, alert, not even good alert, but anxious alert state. So to restore our nervous systems, see if you can count, if you'd like, the length of the exhalation so we can make sure that they're as long as the inhalations. Try not to push out the air. Just release it. If you can cultivate abdominal breathing, that is especially soothing. 
tones the vagal nerve and is associated with states of well-being. When people breathe into their chest, they're generally exercising or in a mobilized uh, hypervigilant state. But when people are truly relaxed, settled, you can observe that state by noting that the breath is most expressed in the abdomen. So see if you can soften the belly, feel it being filled when you're breathing in and then softened and released with the exhalation. Whenever we're in a difficult situation in life, one of the first ways we can we can uh, regulate, lessen the tension or the feeling of emotional unrest is by bringing our awareness to the belly, soften, keep it relaxed, keep the breath flowing into it. It shifts us so efficiently back into that rest and digest state. Also inhibits impulsive reactive behaviors. So long, smooth, relaxed breath. And we'll just sit here for a while in silence. If just being with the breath doesn't feel relieving, then just open your mind and just allow all the sounds and physical sensations, the sounds from the world around you, and just any sensations to fill awareness so that your awareness becomes consumed with the stimuli of the present moment. And each time our attention wanders away from the sounds, the sensations, or the breath. We just bring, we just open and relax the body again, welcoming back our attention, rewarding it with a relaxing breath, unforced smile, we never judge ourselves for wandering away. That's what the mind has learned to do throughout the course of life whenever we're not caught up in some external drama. We generally then get lost in thought. So being fully present 
is not something that we're the mind has been familiarized with.
So at this point, if you'd like to move on to a visualization practice related to tonight's talk, we can, or you can continue simply to find rest and peace in the present moment, both of which are absolutely fine and welcome. So if you'd like, just open your mind to a state where we're not too analytical or logical, and we just allow a creative state of awareness where we allow whatever arises to arise and just ask the depths of the mind, is there anything that we haven't disclosed, revealed, shared about that perhaps out of embarrassment or guilt or just fear that people won't find it interesting or for whatever possible motivation, anything that we haven't disclosed that we've kept to ourselves anything that we use as evidence against ourselves in the court of the mind, evidence that we're in some way lacking, not good enough, or anything that we use as evidence to create a story that we're unique or different or that a sense that people wouldn't understand. So if that comes to mind, great. If not just for the purposes of the exercise, just assume that there is something that you've been struggling with, but haven't disclosed. And now what I'd like you to do is conjure from your mind someone in your life that you'd feel safe disclosing, or at least safer disclosing.
And just visualize a setting where you feel comfortable or supported enough that you could disclose or reveal this part of ourselves or this part of our experience that we haven't felt comfortable previously revealing. If no one comes to mind that feels safe enough, just visualize some figure real or imaginary to be a stand-in at first. And in this visualization practice, in the simplest way, in your mind, say, the truth. Speak your truth. While you do it, make sure the belly is soft. Breathing into it, creating the most comfortable internal experience you can. Just practice speaking in the simplest, clearest way that which we haven't spoken openly of in our life. If you'd like, if another individual comes to mind, we could practice again. And another individual that feels safe, or we might try to be willing to bond, share, disclose. We might even sense 
what kind of relief it would be to not have to hold back our experience from others. So at this point, I'm going to ring the bowl. And when you hear the sound, just take your time. There's no need to rush back to open your eyes. Try to bring with you any feelings or benefits or ease that you developed during your practice. <laughs> 